BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I've mentioned on the show before that I'm half Japanese, but that wasn't really a big part of my life growing up. In fact, when I was younger, my Japanese side of the family used to always go out to Chinese food for dinner. So that was a little confusing. Food can say a lot about who we are, where we come from, and what kind of culture we live in. That's how the San Francisco Chronicle's new restaurant critic thinks. When you privilege your pleasure over understanding the context of things, you don't get the whole picture. Right. And so I think learning the whole picture teaches us a lot about humanity. Today, we'll meet Saleo, who thinks the Bay Area is a good place to talk about food and identity. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to the Bay. I grew up in New York City, in Manhattan, because my mom was in the fashion industry. She was a single mom. Every night when I was a kid, we would choose from a variety of takeout menus. During the week, we could get Indian food, Thai food, French food, Vietnamese food, Chinese food, Mexican. You know, we would always just choose based on our whims. And as a result, I had a really broad palate growing up. I would read New York Magazine all the time. I would read the reviews. I would read about all the openings. And I loved Gail Green so much as a writer because she was gross. It's your um, enthusiastic, almost orgasmic reviews. She was a very horny woman. The fried egg sandwich. That part I remember. And, you know, she would use these very sexual metaphors in her reviews. I can't remember how big it was, how long the sex lasted, or even who was on top, probably me. But I have never forgotten the fried egg sandwich. I just found that, you know, when I was eight or seven, Uh I found that a laugh riot. I thought that was amazing. At that moment, it might have been clear I was born to be a restaurant critic. I just didn't know it yet. How old are you at this time? I was in grade school. Grade school. So this is like a a pretty big prelude to what you're doing now, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those things where you look back and you're like, oh, it all makes sense now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the different places you've lived because you started living in New York. And then where did you go after that? And how did that change how you thought about food? Oh, my God. That's such a long story. (laughs) Um, Okay. So... When I was looking for colleges, I realized that I was really sheltered, which is a weird thing to think. In New York, yeah. Yeah, but I only knew New York. And so I decided to go to school in the middle of nowhere in Iowa. Um, And that was really interesting. 
I went to the school where you'd have to drive maybe an hour and a half to get to a Chipotle. <laughs> so wow. it was totally different than New York. <laughs> yeah, it was totally different. It was pig country. Wow. And um, I ended up working at the one nice restaurant in town because I just needed to be connected to a nice restaurant, you know, a place with tablecloths and had aspirations. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Ever since my first year of college when I was 17, I worked in restaurants up until like six months ago. Okay. I graduated in 2009, right at the crest of the recession. And so I decided to go away to a farm. Farm. Yeah, a okay. vegetable farm in Minnesota. And so I worked there for a season. And after that, I moved to Minneapolis. I found a position as an intern for a startup online food publication called Heavy Table. And they were the first people to give me a chance to do any sort of food writing. And I never even contemplated doing any sort of food writing before. I wrote capsule reviews at first, so that was just the one-visit review, and I would try to kind of fit in my style to their house style. I really developed my my language around that. And, you know, they let me use the yucky metaphors that I like, like, that were very sexual and very inspired by Gail Green, you know? Um, <laughs> For examples of these yucky metaphors... So um, at the time, there was this really great review that I wrote. I'm just calling it great. I loved it. Where <laughs> I use the metaphor of um, water sports to talk about uh, a very delicious mushroom broth that I had. <laughs> and it was it was great. And readers were both repulsed and attracted. What yeah. was it? What was... <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, it's like, like, like urinating in someone's mouth. Like oh. that kind of water sports. <laughs> Not what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gross. Sorry. So tell me about what kind of writer you are and how you approach the work that you do. Yeah. So I always had one foot in restaurants and one foot into this very, like, strong intellectual life. And so in college, I got really into critical race theory and cultural studies and psychoanalysis and just thinking about, oh gosh, postmodernism, right? And thinking about how aesthetics and ethics and ideology all intersect. This is some deep stuff, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so fascinating to me. I love it. And, you know, one of my capstone papers was about the gentry women of the progressive era and how their menus that they would make for dinner parties reflected their socioeconomic class. You know, like that sort of stuff was so interesting to me. And that informed my food writing, right? Because I thought talking about food is a really accessible way to understand these like headier things. Because of the recession, I ended up working in restaurants a lot. And eventually working on the line in the kitchen and interacting with all kinds of people, you know, really diverse people from all kinds of social economic classes. And one thing I really enjoyed was talking about these bigger issues with them. And oftentimes the the most present metaphor was what was right in front of us. Food. Yeah. We're better than New York City to talk about food's role in cultural identity. I make fire spaghetti and meatballs, but I want to cook for you the food that, like, I ate at home as a Chinese person. I don't think that white voices should be centered around a dish that was created, invented, launched, and made popularized by black businesses 80 years ago. We have the responsibility of shifting the narrative about the food movement. And so we have to ask ourselves whose voices are being heard and whose images 
are being projected. When we talk about food, I think it's easy to overlook where the food's coming from and what that actually means and the way that talks to identity. I almost feel like you can't talk about food without talking about identity. Yeah. I mean, I'm of the firm belief that if you bring context to the things that we consume, you know, the things that are right in front of us, you can learn so much about where we are in society and in, you know, this particular time and this particular place. Things like labor conditions and gender relationships, all of these hierarchical things that are just hidden beneath the surface. Yeah. I find the Bay Area to be a really great place for these conversations. I have a podcast called Racist Sandwich, and the majority of our listeners are from the Bay Area. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's what I noticed. And it's because the podcast is out. Yeah, it's out of Portland. Mm hmm. Well, what I like about the Racist Sandwich, the, the first episode that you put out was with the first black winemaker in Portland. I got to keep validating myself to these people, you know, that, yes, I am the winemaker. Okay, so uh, you went to Davis, you know, for winemaker? No, I didn't go to school. That episode demonstrated very well the way you can bring in storytelling, humor, um, and some of these deeper conversations about race and what it means to be of wine culture. Is there is there ever a pressure on on a lot of like my, uh, minority winemakers of color to like dress a certain way to talk a certain way? So it's like you can be like Mexican American or, or African American, but just dress a certain way, like wear those ascots and mm. listen to like you know I don't know some Italian. I don't, I don't know. Isn't that what they're called? Those scarves yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. they're called. Correct. You know what I mean? Correct. I mean, because I mean, I was in Napa, you oh, know, course, just recently, yeah. and it's like you just see some of these you know people of color working at these places, and I think like. Do they really want to dress like that? I mean, I don't know, you know? But again, it's part of that you think this is what you have to do to be in the industry. I had the luxury of I run my own, you know, house that, you know, I'm like, you know what, the hell with that. You know, you come into my tasting room, there's hip hop playing. You know, there's R&B, you know, I'm, you know, jeans and a T-shirt. You know, one of the things that really matters to me about those sorts of conversations is informality. You know, yeah. and I find that restaurant criticism, you know, you, you always bring your own style, but I, I hope to bring informality to it so that, you know, I, I think some people who might be misreading my body of work probably anticipate a didacticism or polemics instead of, you know, actual restaurant criticism. But a lot of what we do is really fun, too. Yeah. It doesn't have to be stodgy or accusatory or, you know, all of those sorts right. of things that people associate with social justice or... Yeah. People who care about human rights. Like, right, right. I think there's, there are ways to do it that are really accessible and fun. How do you balance both talking about the food, but then also like going into these deeper things? I mean, one review that really inspired me recently was Pete Wells, who is the New York Times food reviewer, reviewed The Four Seasons restaurant in New York. And the owner was, it came out that he was um, assaulting people, women, including guests. Um, he was very touchy. And there are arguments to be said on many sides, right? You should go, you shouldn't go, just don't acknowledge them at all. I know various publications have policies where they just refuse to go to restaurants where there are like sexual harassment and assault allegations being floated around. Um, but Pete Wells handled it really elegantly, I thought. You read four or five paragraphs about what this guy did, and then he starts talking about the food. Oh, wow. 
thinking about a review only in terms of someone who's never experienced assault um, isn't really doing due diligence to the dining public because a lot of people have experienced that and they will experience a restaurant where that is omnipresent in the culture very differently and that perspective does matter. Well, I know something that you all talked about in, on The Racist Sandwich was this idea of having covered food from the media, having covered food from a white lens. I mean, that's how we approach a lot of things in our society. And you guys both talked about wanting to not do that. And I thought calling that out at the beginning and helping, I guess, the listener understand where you're coming from early on was really important. I'm assuming that's going to be uh, the way you approach what you're going to be doing with the San Francisco Chronicle. Oh, no, I'm only talking from the white lens. <laughs> well, congratulations. Welcome to the Bay Area. Uh, <laughs> I, I would assume like that would be something that they would should be welcoming. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about how that sounds, how that looks and feels differently? So for me, thinking about the gaze, right, which is a term that we borrow from the term the male gaze in feminist theory, thinking about the white gaze or the colonial gaze really comes down to framing and your assumed audience. So when you write about, let's say, an Indian restaurant and you you frame it as if your reader has never heard of any of these things or you frame it in a way that, I don't know, assumes the exoticism and the spice level or whatever, you know, you are subtly privileging a certain kind of perspective when you use the language of discovery, for instance, like, oh, yeah, like you're you're going to be taken on an adventure, a spice adventure when you have these turmeric lattes, you know, it it does otherize. Yeah. And so I don't think it's a big sort of sweeping motion that you make in your writing when it comes to that sort of thing. It comes through in these little word choices. Yeah. I feel like that's actually something that we try to do on the bay too is like be very careful with the way we're framing and and making sure we are talking about are we doing this right even having that conversation at the beginning and throughout the process of production i think is actually really interesting because we do get caught up in centering the whiteness yeah it's something we do i think unconsciously right um i do it unconsciously all the time and to actually get past that requires so much work and so much constant thinking about the the effects of your choices in the way that we're not encouraged to do generally it's hard i mean yeah because it's baked into the way we live our lives which is why i'm lucky to have Vinny and erica and you know a space to actually have those conversations Mm -hmm. um i'm hoping you have that at the chronicle too oh yeah, yeah i think so well thank you so much for talking to us thank you Slejo is the San Francisco Chronicle's new restaurant critic. She starts the job on January 14th, but I know that she's already checked out some Bay Area restaurants. I am going to Marshawn Lynch's new restaurant after this and get the Beast Mode platter. And if you get a chance, check out the podcast she co-hosted, Racist Sandwich. You can find that wherever you find the Bay. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for us. Talk to you Wednesday. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing... 
and I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.